project A plus. My name is Hugh. Whoa, why do you, you sound so down in the dumps, Hugh? I want to reserve all my excitement for the movie we're discussing today. Let me, let me try. Let me try. Hey guys, welcome to Project A plus, the podcast. I'm Hunter. That's definitely more befitting of like a Spielberg youthful protagonist. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely the uh, what was his name? Wade Watts of the uh, <laughs> of the uh, our dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the bulk of this week's show will be dedicated to uh, Steven Spielberg's latest effort, Ready Player One. So should we uh, set up the uh, movie a little bit, or does it need no introduction? I, I think it needs some introduction, and because yeah. you were the one who forced me to watch it, you should do it. Forced you? But I'm sick. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll, I'll try and set it up. All right, fine, fine. Um, so it's Spielberg's latest film. Uh, it's based on a novel by the guy whose name is not readily accessible to me. Uh, er- Ernest Klein. Ernest, Ernest Klein. Klein. Who also co-wrote the screenplay. He did. And, um, well, I'll just say, uh, stay tuned for a little bit of Ernest Klein's genius. Okay. Um, and it's set at uh, some point in the future. I think like 2045 or something. And uh, our protagonist, who is a typical luscious-lipped Spielberg child. Who is a, de- a default, a default white male. <laughs> yeah. Definitely he would have been played by Shia LaBeouf if this was made in his heyday. Yeah, maybe like 10 years ago. Uh, and so it set him some mildly dystopian future. I thought it was pretty dystopic. I don't know. Well, we I don't know what the like the full extent of the future is. I only know that his particular part of the world is like a, a shanty town sort of place with uh, trailers stacked on top of one another. So he's in like this rough neighborhood relatively speaking where everyone is consumed. columbus columbus ohio columbus ohio and everyone is consumed inside this uh vr video game called the oasis yeah it's it's more like a net it's not it's, it seems like more of like a net internet replacement type thing than just like a video game and they say it's a huge part of the economy apparently. yeah and it seems to be the only thing that matters at all it's a very believable world and the designer the late designer of this video game world uh has implanted an easter egg inside the game um that you can access via a series of challenges and if you succeed in obtaining this easter egg you get control of the company that that owns this yeah you get the majority stock become the the head of it or something yeah yeah so everyone's competing for it there's this spielberg protagonist kid who of course has an abusive family life yeah yeah um (laughs) and there's also this rival corporation which has hired gamers to systematically attempt to obtain this easter egg hired and we're enslaved sort of Yeah, it's saved as well. Uh, here I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in a little bit. Were you uh insulted by the fact that uh Ben Middleton always used to play villains in American movies? So it is it is curious to me that he's found this niche as the evil yuppie of choice in so many of these films, or just someone who's obsessed with bureaucracy. It's really strange because like there's nothing about the type of roles he played or his natural acting style that makes one think that. No. And it's it's usually um, not very effective. I think this is one of his better performances in that role. Yeah, I thought he was okay. He's mastered the American accent 
um, a lot better than he used to be able to. I mean, there's nothing much anyone could do with the role he's given, and I don't. I, th- I think he's fine. I don't think he's yeah. Terrible. Whatever. He's. I mean, that's how I thought about all the actors actually. And his teeth, um, his false sort of white teeth, were kind of an effective character detail, I think. But anyway, that's the that's the general premise. So we're siding with uh, this Spielberg kid and his friends trying to get the Easter eggs. No, no, essentially, yeah, there's a gang of kids. They're all trying to get the Easter eggs so they can get in control of the Oasis, prevent it from falling into the hands of uh, uh, this massive corporation that seems to dominate the rest of society. And we don't necessarily know they'll they'll do anything evil with it, except that their methods for obtaining it is evil. Except for their, uh, <laughs> their army of slaves. <laughs> Basically... The reason he's trying to get it instead of uh, this evil corporation is because Ben Mendelsohn is not as well versed in uh, pop culture from like seventy years prior to the. I mean, he's also he's also a bad guy. Like, let's not. Yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, his methods are bad, but maybe like he maybe he'd be better at handling it. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't uh, support that reading. <laughs> but um, so let's let's just start with the uh, the basics. What did you think of the film, Matthew? <laughs> okay, so I I. Very much disliked the length of the film. Um, so it manages to stretch really no plot at all <laughs> <laughs> to uh, a whopping two hours and 20 minutes, which I guess is standard for this type of blockbuster. It is. Uh, a lot of them have elements I enjoy and are enjoyable up until a point, and then they always push things too far. So by the end, I'm more negative about the whole film than I otherwise might have been. Because there are elements of uh, this film that I think kind of work. Spielberg actually handles the CGI quite well in places. Yeah, he's like the best at doing that, I think. I'm only thinking about the early car chase scene. Yeah, that's really well done. Which is entirely CGI, uh, and it has a grab bag of, of 80s references, which, which I don't really care about. It's including a bizarre kind of French connection reference. <laughs> I will say at the at the at, at the first part, uh, I thought it was supremely annoying just the amount of references, right? Uh, like, I don't know, like when RoboCop showed up, I was like, okay, great. The Battletoads, I don't know, like whatever. It was it was it was it was, it was annoying. But yeah, it was uh, annoying. after a certain after there's a certain tipping point where it just became so much that I was like, this is so dumb. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> the highlight slash low light was the uh, Chucky bit at the end for me. Yeah, I think the main thing to to be said about the references is not so much that they're there. It's the fact that they're always announced by one of the characters. It's like, oh, it's Chucky. Oh, it's Gundam. Oh, it's Mechagodzilla. <laughs> oh, it's the Iron Giant. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> it's a film all about uh, how like having very specific knowledge of things makes you better than everyone else, but also does not trust its audience to have this specific knowledge. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, none of the references were like, whoa, that's a good reference to me at all. No, uh, but I, I think, the, I can't imagine Spielberg being the sort of person who would want to embed, like, smart-ass references. Yeah. That only certain parts of the audience would get. But no, like, just all the references are annoying. <laughs> yeah, like, There's are. no way to do it that's not annoying. <laughs> there's no way to do it that's not annoying. It's inherent in the source material. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the whole I thing. I mean, apparently the book is trash, too. Well, apparently this is a big improvement on the book as well, which I'm never going to read, so... <laughs> yeah, I can I cannot imagine this working as a piece of literature, for one thing. But the best-selling novel... How do you write references, like, to, to I, 80s I've read I've read some, like, uh, excerpts, so I'd write it, but it's just, like, endless, like, listing of 
movie titles and like uh, it just seemed terrible it's sort of like american psycho because think of how much of an advantage you have visually like you can just show like robocop on the background that's all you need to do whereas this you have to write down robocop shows up in the background from the movie robocop um i have to say it this is gonna sound like i i don't know i enjoyed this film like a lot more than i was expecting it actually has like pretty positive when it said when all was said and done because uh, it's one of the rare films that I've seen, uh, and the only other example that I could like right away comes to mind for me is uh, the second uh, Star Wars prequel, which I there are parts of it that I really enjoy. Like, I really enjoy that that chase sequence at the beginning. I enjoy the shining sequence a lot. <laughs> specifically, but no, no, specifically because I know that so many people who are like really into movies like this is like a desecration you know what i mean i could just feel people getting angry at it and that made me like it more <laughs> and uh i don't know that all the all the sort of uh i think Spielberg's one of the best people at doing cgi um and he makes it feel like tactile in a way that it generally doesn't especially the car chase felt a lot more visceral than you typically get with uh, all cgi experiences um but to finish my my point uh there are plenty of parts of the movie that are like howlingly awful, okay? <laughs> but much like Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, I find them to be so bad that they like go around and they're completely enjoyable for me. And I think I, I was like, I, uh, I, the, the like runtime just like flew by for me, which I was not expecting either. Because, <laughs> like, like you, like sometimes if it's, like, I can think of like the Transformers movies, for instance, which are just feel like they're just gone forever. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily like, tedious like it's not super tedious but i think certainly the third act um exhausted me as they typically tend to do i confess i haven't seen the film i'm about to talk about but it reminded me a lot of moulin rouge uh in the way that moulin rouge makes really bold on the nose creative decisions about the type of music that it integrates into the story you know 90s chart topping hits and all that sort of stuff put in the context of Moulin Rouge and the the sort of shamelessness of, of Baz Luhrmann's sensibility there which almost becomes the point uh, I kind of sensed a little bit of that it's tricky to even like dismiss how bad the references are because it kind of becomes the it's so shameless it's kind of the point of the <laughs> yeah and it makes it makes the characters and like it, it, it kind of works as like a character building thing for you like we're like not in like a way that seemed intentional necessarily, but it just made everyone in the movie, like every single person just seem like a, a complete loser, which I really <laughs> liked. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It, it's really accurate in uh, how it depicts nerd culture, I think. The summer sex where it's just like self-referential, annoying garbage, you know? I, I do think even though like um, everyone talks about the references to previous films, and it's kind of interesting in and of itself that it exists for that reason. But I, I think it's it's somewhat of a shame that it didn't attempt to forge its own iconography with this Oasis place. I mean, there's a little bit of its own creativity, and there's obviously creativity in combining these elements, but I think the story would have worked better if it was its own world. Like, I don't know why anyone would be that interested in going back to this grab bag of references from someone whose generation they don't share yeah, and who didn't grow up on this sort of stuff. It doesn't really make sense. I, I'm actually going to push against you a little bit. It's like how, uh, I don't know, like how culture is currently like trapped in this like never ending cycle of like just every every movie that's released, like every blockbuster is just like nostalgia bait essentially, right? 
like even like the big superhero movies, which are like apparently like the new innovation of like the twentieth century or twenty first century, are just like rehashes of like childhood stuff, you know. And that's something Spielberg is is currently doing. Yeah, but like I to me that like it seems like <laughs> it made me be like, oh my god, this is just like actually blockbuster culture, and like this is terrible. <laughs> I, I don't think it's, like, trying to comment on it necessarily, but it sort of, like, unintentionally functions as uh, a reflection. You know what I mean? It could have used this premise to make some points about it, but they don't really. They do sort of, like, they, like, and Mark Rylance's character does sort of integrate some commentary, but just, like, it's really, like, shallow. Don't forget the real word is real. Yeah. But I, you know what? I actually think she's great. <laughs> like, he's amazing. And the, the, I, I think it's an interesting film. I don't think it's like a complete waste. It's just interesting that it exists. You know, I agree. And it's, it's interesting that Spielberg directed it too. Like, I wonder, like, why did he make this movie? <laughs> Do you know who he's actually somewhat of a gamer? Like, he has a history. Yeah, I did know that. Yeah, and he wanted to, he, he's in, he had like a gaming company for a while that, uh, I don't know, didn't produce much, but did stuff like some Wii games or something like that. He was involved with uh, Lucas. Lucasfilm and later LucasArts games as well. Uh, so one of their adventure games, The Dig, uh, I think he has a production and story credit on. And uh, a funny bit of trivia is that um, he used to play the, those old adventure games with his kids. And when he gets stuck on a puzzle, because he's Steven Spielberg, he'd call up like the game designer and say, <laughs> hey, what do I do with this next That's bit? That's really funny. And they were getting calls from Spielberg to solve puzzles, which is funny. But anyway. That's it. Uh, apparently, there's a uh, video game arm of Amblin Entertainment. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it looks like he's involved with a bunch of stuff, actually. Including something called Steven Spielberg's Director's Chair. Oh my god, that sounds so good. <laughs> wait, wait, just, just, just listen to this, okay? Okay. In the game, the player is guided by film director Steven Spielberg, appearing as himself, through the comprehensive process of movie making, including script writing, filming, and editing, using pre-generated film clips featuring Jennifer Aniston, Friends Herself, <laughs> Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> as an actor, yeah, yeah, C- Catherine Helmond, and can you guess it? Penn and Teller. What? <laughs> that sounds amazing. So we'll save that for our Twitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh for sure for sure jesus christ i love i love simulation games um that, that promise the world and like deliver this really shitty experience <laughs> just love the pin and teller part of it <laughs> ah famous movie actors pin and teller from such films as pin and teller are dead <laughs> so how old is this game uh, it was released in 1996. Oh, my God. <laughs> this could be, if, if someone hasn't already discovered this, this could be like the source of memes for the next 20 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, probably. Probably. Um, I wonder how much of a, uh, what do you call it, uh, Ready Player One's Inception is locked up in this. I like the failure of, of some of the, the world building. Like uh... Yeah. Well, I do think, I think it, 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 the sort of establishing shots of the world posits something that could be interesting. You know what I mean? They never really, like, they don't do it enough, unfortunately. The thing that's, uh, that doesn't quite work is, is the Oasis is supposed to be this VR experience that everyone is escaping their awful lives to immerse themselves into this amazing world. 
But when they show like an example of one of these poorer towns where our protagonist lives and it's um, like those containers where people are living stacked on top of one another and mountains of cars, it looks like a really exciting place for like a kid's adventure film, right? It looks like where you'd want to run around and enjoy yourself. It doesn't, it looks more interesting than some of the stuff in the Oasis, honestly. That's your prefer, like personal preference, I guess. Yeah, I, I suppose so. But I actually think that's a problem with a lot of films that have dystopian futures. Is that they, they uh, sometimes make up too, like I think of... Um, they aestheticize it too much, yeah. Yeah, but I don't think this is a problem with Blade Runner, necessarily. But I think Blade Runner does fall into that trap where it's kind of hard to make this like, or like a, a little bit of like the um, uh, anti-capitalism that could be read into Blade Runner gets lost when the world that it creates is so like fascinating to look at, which is part of what capitalism does too. So, I, you know, I don't know. I think Blade Runner is, is an interesting film because intellectually, I don't think it's that profound uh, no. and, or successful, but as a mood piece, it's, it's like perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. But there's some other funny things with the world building. I love the attempt at the moral at the end. And the, the the message of the film is not like, don't lose yourself in a video game. It's just, let's take moderation. You know, just take two days off a week. Is the... <laughs> I mean, it's like, I don't know. That seems fine to me. I don't know. Which I like the fact that some people have pointed out, like if it's such a crucial part of the economy and people's livelihood depends on this, that's, that's a potentially costly decision. <laughs> that's a stupid uh, way. Because it's like, oh, should we stop oil production just because so many people are employed by it? Like... Obviously not. Like, there's no there's no alternative positive, which is true. But like, and that sounds like oh, we shouldn't stop slavery because it employs so many people. Like, but I think the main thing is, it it kind of hints towards this message of like you know don't forget real life is real, which is literally the words that come out of Mark Rowan's mouth. I was like, that's not going to be the whole speech, is it? And that's the whole speech. <laughs> um. And then the solution to that is, is they're still going to be there five days a week. Like it, it's, it doesn't really work as any sort of moral. <laughs> no, no. But it doesn't really, I mean, I don't care. I don't need a moral. So. Yeah, no, nor do I. It would be better if they just like disposed with it entirely, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and they just was like, now we're in charge of the Oasis. It's great. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. It, it reminded me a lot of uh, being on the internet. Where everything is just like a sea of like self-referential garbage, and I hate it. <laughs> so in that sense, I'm like, I do kind of think that people are like, oh, this is, doesn't reflect like internet culture, just completely off. Uh, I do have one one extra thing to say, um, which again, this is something that the movie like hints at, but then fails to explore or undermine, which is the idea of someone uh, in the in the real world creating this virtual avatar which is like their ideal physical self and it doesn't necessarily match their actual self. Yeah. And they set up the thing with the love interest in the film for our protagonist. Samantha. Samantha. And she tells our protagonist, hey, I'm not like this in the real world. You won't like me. And he's like, I still want to meet you. And then like I go, wow, what's she going to look like? Then we see her in the real world and it's a beautiful actress and her only defect apparently is the most beautiful like birthmark softly shaded over her like left it's eye. Like, it's, it's like Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, it's like, what What are you talking about? Like, come on. What was your favorite reference? I'm assuming the guy with the sort of slightly android like um, samurai costume was supposed to be Mifune in Throne of Blood. Oh, really? I can't confirm if that if it's not a reference to something else with like a, a mech. But I mean, Spielberg is like a Kurosawa fan, so that's entirely possible. I'm, I'm not saying that's like a reference I enjoyed, like putting Kurosawa <laughs> in the context of this film. But I mean, at least, the, you know, that's 
a little more in my wheelhouse, I guess. <laughs> what about you? Say there are no uh, Tokyo Story. <laughs> <laughs> Tokyo Story could lend itself to VR because of those straight-on <laughs> conversation shots. It kind of, it, it kind of is VR. <laughs> <laughs> Proto VR, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah um, excuse me. I think. Um, uh, I I actually I'm trying to think of a, a reference that I thought was I I, I really did I really did enjoy a lot the shiny bit I have to say. <laughs> what did you think about that sequence? Well, I mean, Kubrick is is certainly no longer a sacred cow for me, so I don't really care like uh, that they did that. I, I just thought it was uh, it was just peculiar. I I thought it was a strange choice, given that it would co- probably horrify certain uh members of the audience of a certain age that's what i liked about it actually it's so audacious it but it's it's yeah that that just seemed odd to me like when he wants it to be a family-friendly film and it's got this, yeah i guess so this whole sequence doesn't really <laughs> fit. Literally, literally like what i don't know it's pg-13 like whatever if, if they're gonna do a sequence a sustained sequence in which they essentially jump inside another film it's a strange choice like given how all the options they they could have um, opted for um, or like exciting adventure films or anything like that that they could have jumped in and had, had a good time with it's just a strange film. i feel like we should have done like indiana jones you know yeah yeah and it's i love that they didn't show like jack nicholson at all like they had like scenes that definitely referenced his presence but he didn't exist in the film. now the flip side what's your least favorite reference this this isn't doesn't really reflect me because i was i've never i've never actually seen the film uh the iron giant and I also know that it wasn't Spielberg's original choice for that robot. He couldn't get the rights to the robot he wanted. And apparently Which that is was what? plan B. I'm not sure. Oh, that's a um, shame. I think it was like a, maybe maybe like more of a classic sci-fi robot as opposed to the Iron Giant. Um, but isn't the point of the Iron oh. Giant that he's he refuses to be used as a weapon? I just But like, it makes it into like an even more of a dystopian thing where it's like they have all these references but they don't understand the original context at all. So it's just like... That kind of makes it good. Yeah, I can't really think of anything I, I hated because it, it was all the same standard, really. Um, I really hated the uh, the bit where the Goro from uh, Mortal Kombat had a alien facehugger in him. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, so that was my least favorite bit of the entire movie, I think. I kind of wish they just turned to the camera whatever there's room to say, do you see that? We're going to do the dance from... This is the outfit for Buckaroo Bonsai. Yeah. Oh, was that Buckaroo Bonsai? I didn't, I didn't understand they, that. They happened. say that. Yeah, I know. They say it like 20 times. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, man. And I love that my favorite like bit of like bad characterization is apparently that's uh, the main character's favorite film. That's that's the strange the strange thing because I think I think what this film could have done interestingly which but which it doesn't do is the fact that Mark Rylan has created his like pet paradise of all references that are meaningful to him but that to the people of subsequent generations um, shouldn't mean the same thing so it really should be them taking these references and using them in a completely different way not really understanding their origin but it's kind of ruined by him saying like Buckaroo Bonsai is his favorite film. <laughs> Some of that does go through, like the uh, like the Saturday Night Fever dance too. Yeah, overall, I'd say like four stars. <laughs> it's definitely the best blockbuster I've seen in a bit. I think I might have enjoyed it more than Black Panther actually. 
I think I give it like three or something. It was it was it was alright. It wasn't it wasn't terrible. So that's our uh, main film for the week. Uh, only one film this week. Sorry, guys. Yeah, sorry. I know all our fans are disappointed. <laughs> so for our next segment, uh, I typically would read a uh, piece of celebrity art or literature specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've got a special treat for you, uh, you, which is a themed Ready Player One, which is okay. a, a poem by the. Uh, author of the novel that the film was based on in the co-writer of the screenplay, uh, uh, Ernest Klein. Where does the poem hail from? I don't, I don't know if he has, I don't think it's like related to the Ready Player One universe, <laughs> or I don't know if he has a poetry collection or anything. Well, I mean, I found the, the so poem. So you didn't do your research? Just I gave you a fucking find out. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't think he has a, I would love it if he had a, if he had a poetry collection. Anyway, okay. <clears throat> Nerd Porn Author by Ernest Klein. I've noticed that there doesn't seem to be any porno movies that are made for guys like me. All the porn I've come across was targeted at beer-swilling, sports-bar-dwelling alpha males. Men who like their women stupid and submissive. Men who can only get it up for monosyllabic, cock-hungry nymphos with gargantuan breasts and a three-word vocabulary. Adult films are populated by these collagen-injected, liposuctioned women many of whom have resorted to surgery and self-mutilation and attempt to be to look the way they have been told to look. These aren't real women, they're objects. And these movies aren't erotic, they're pathetic. These vacuum-headed fuck bunnies don't turn me on, they disgust me. And it's not that I'm against pornography. I mean, I'm a guy, and guys need porn. Fact. Like a preacher needs pain, like a needle needs a vein. Guys need porn. But I don't want to watch this misogynist, he-man, woman-hater porn. I want porno movies that are made with guys like me in mind. Guys who know that the, th- the sexiest thing in the world is a woman who is smarter than you are. You could have the whole cheerleading squad. I want the girl in the tweed skirt and the horn-rimmed glasses. Betty Finabowski, the valedictorian. Oh, yes. First, I want to copy her trig homework. <laughs> and, then, and then I want to make bad, passionate love to her for hours and hours until she relu- re- reluctantly asks if we can stop because she doesn't want to miss Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> Summa cum laude, baby. That's what I call erotic. Do you ever see this kind of women in a contemporary adult film? No. Which is why I'm going to start writing and directing geek porno. I shall be the quintessential nerd porn auteur. And the women in my porno movies shall be the kind that drive nerds like me mad with desire. I'm talking about the girls who used to fuck up the grading curve. The girls at the Latin Club and the National Honor Society. Chicks with weird clothes, braces, four eyes, and 4.0 GPAs. Brainy articulate bookworms with mints of cards in their purses and chips on their shoulders. My porn starlets will come in all shapes and sizes. My porn starlets will be too busy working on their PhDs to go to the gym. In my kind of porno movies, the girls wouldn't even have to get naked. they just take across, take the guys down to the rec room and beat them repeatedly at chess and then talk to them for hours about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle or the underlying social metaphors in the Aliens movies. Buy some stock in hand cream companies because there's about to be a major shortage. I'm not just talking about straight porn. Oh no, there should be fuck flicks for my nerd brethren of all sexual orientations. Gay nerd porn flicks with titles like Dungeons and Drag Queens. This idea is a fucking goldmine. I'm going to make millions because this country is full of database programmers and electronics engineers. Then they aren't getting the loving that they so desperately need. And you can help. If you're an intelligent woman who's interested in breaking into the adult film industry, and you can tell me the name of Luke Skywalker's home planet that you were hired. It doesn't matter if you think you're overweight or unattractive. It doesn't matter if you don't think you're beautiful. 
you are beautiful, and I will make you a star. Jesus. Did you have to dig for it, or is that a... Uh, it's kind of known. It's kind of known. First you of all, enjoy that? First of all, all those things exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, first. <laughs> Second of all, he's slut-shaming adult film actresses. Yeah, yeah. Third of all, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even remember his name. Like, it would have been better if I said fuck you, comma, whatever his name is. Uh, Ernest Klein. I've said it like six times at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just edited it so it sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Now that we've had that uh, wonderful poetry reading, I guess we should transition to the poems we've been watching. So I think it's going to be sparse on both of our behalfs. Uh, me, because I um, worked a lot this week, and then I had a friend come in from out of town who stayed with me for the last couple of days and didn't have a lot of time to watch movies. So if we start with the best film I saw, uh, I actually saw this yesterday at at the theater. Oh, wow. At a revival house or a new film? The revival house. Okay. So it was The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Ah, I've always wanted to see that. Uh, which is wonderful. Uh, it's the sort of handsome Technicolor production you'd expect from the Archers to go alongside Red Shoes and Black Narcissus and all that. Um, so it looks lovely. It's uh, one of the longer films. I think it's like two hours and 43 minutes. So approaching three hours. But as always with the Archers, it's never boring or, or tedious or stretched out. They're surprisingly economical i mean it's probably not the sort of pacing that contemporary audiences will necessarily appreciate but there is something always entertaining about their productions but yeah this is an interesting film so it's based on or rather inspired by a comic strip called colonel blimp about this kind of blowhard british general oh it's a it's a very but it's sort of like patriotic right or conservative or something right the the comic strip is a parody of like oh okay of, of that sort of patriotism Sure, sure. Of the sort of, you know, blustery British general sensibility. Um, and the, the famous sort of uh, twist of the, the comic strip is that he would often contradict himself mid-sentence. Um, and it was actually made by a New Zealander, funnily enough. So it's like a strange New Zealand uh, comic strip. So the film takes kind of the idea of, of that character and his, his famous look, which is a bald head and a, and a flowing mustache but the character in the film is not actually called colonel blimp nor does he die so it's oddly oddly called the life and death of colonel blimp even though he doesn't die um and it just follows him throughout periods of his life it was actually banned by churchill because it came out during the second world war oh, really? um, churchill didn't actually watch it but oh. uh, based on a synopsis someone gave him he was like no we can't release that partly um, possibly because Colonel, the Colonel Blimp character is actually Colonel Candy or something like that. Strikes up a decades-long friendship with a German officer who is anti-Nazi in the film. Like, he leaves Germany um, because of the Nazis. But just the fact that, you know, they're humanizing a German officer uh, was troublesome at the time, I guess. The Colonel Blimp guy, Roger Livesey. So he was also in I Know Where I'm Going, uh, which is another of their films I watched uh, relatively recently. Uh, I think he's a really great actor, and this is one of the best performances uh, of an actor showing multiple time periods, you know, from, from a young man to the old blustery Colonel Blimp type at the end of the film. He, he's really convincing as an old blustering is guy. Is the, like the makeup still 
The makeup's fine. It's not hugely elaborate. The main thing is the fact that they bulk him up and he's bald. So it's just like Citizen Kane then. It doesn't look like he's got a whole lot of prosthetics on his face or anything like that, which usually detracts more so than it actually helps anything. Um, so it's largely done with the way he carries his head and sort of squashes out his chin and, and deepens his voice a bit and uh, plays up this kind of caricature that he's kind of become. But it's an, it's an amazing performance. The German friend is played by Anton Walbrook, who was also in The Red Shoes as the domineering director who represents the arts. Um, and he's a great actor uh, and they're both really great. Deborah Kerr is really good. Her side of the side of the story is perhaps more of a weakness because um, initially she marries uh, Anton Walbrock, but Roger Lovesey was also in love with her. So he marries a woman who looks identical to her that he happens upon. <laughs> and it's obviously played by Deborah Kerr again. It's such a little vertigo-y. Yeah, it, it is a bit. And then um, later, uh, after both Deborah Kerrs die, <laughs> then there's a new Deborah Kerr that he selects to be his driver. <laughs> Creepy. <laughs> Even though they don't like end up having a relationship with this Deborah Kerr, but it's still creepy. <laughs> yeah, but I could see it as like a yeah, he's like, like you know he's going through his life. Yeah. Memory just inserting. Yeah, I, I got. I can I get it, but whatever. But it's a it, it's a lovely film, and if you have a chance to catch it, especially in theaters. Um. So yeah, Life and Death of Kerr Brent was my uh, probably the best one I saw. Mm. What about you? <laughs> well, this is where I'm going to talk about a. Uh, Three films in one. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> I recently uh, purchased on Blu-ray the uh, a trilogy of films by uh, Takashi Miike called the Dead or Alive trilogy. And um, they're kind of sinned up, over-the-top, uh, surrealistic, very absurd, grotesque, uh, very disgusting gangster movies um all of which star uh two sort of uh famous directed dvd cinema stars in japan whose names are uh uh riki uh takechi i i didn't pass that correctly and uh shoikawa right um and they it's sort of like it takes the idea of like the eternal pair of like a a cop at least the first one does a cop and uh, his, like, you know, uh, his opposite on the other side of the wall, uh, and then stretches it out to just absurd and bizarre lengths. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's one of those films, I think, at least the first one, uh, is better served by just not knowing as much about it when you're going in. Sort of the fact that it's, like, a really bizarre watch, uh, because a lot of the pleasure sort of lies in how shocking and disgusting it gets, I think. Yes. Yeah. And the Eddie especially is just amazingly like <laughs> it comes out of nowhere. Um and that's it's a really good time. Uh but I actually ended up preferring the second movie, which is also like completely inexplicable in that the first one is very much sort of it it's it's one of those films that like you're not sure whether the entire thing's a joke or not. The second one's that's true of the second one as well, but it, it leans uh, way heavier into just like pure sentimentality. <laughs> Which is amazing because it takes these two characters that are just like, um, you know, thinly drawn, I don't know, like types and tries to imbue them with like emotional life. Uh, and I think they work in an in interesting complexity too. And like, um, Mike came from Korean immigrant parents, and I don't want to describe too much of like his background to his. I didn't actually know that. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, 
I know he he adapted like the happiness of the Katakuris is based on a Korean oh really um, soap opera I think yeah oh huh that's that's interesting um but uh a lot of his films and the general movies especially sort of deal with these sort of ethnic ethnic divisions in Japan um which is pretty evident in the first one because uh the gangster and a lot of the, the Chinese ethnic characters are like forced to become like criminals in order to survive uh, and they're forced to assume a certain role because of how the cops and society like you know structurally uh prevents them from moving up in the world um and it, it contains a lot more uh sort of social commentary than you expect from a, a film that also features the scene where a uh uh yakuza boss snorts what it seems to be like 30 feet of cocaine <laughs> uh and the final the the last one is like bizarre in like a completely other way where it takes place in like it's like the chintziest future <laughs> and they're both robots it's so bizarre <laughs> but it's also like it's also i i i it's it's the most boring one i think but it's boring just sort of helps it and it has another just completely inexplicable ending uh and i really really love the hell out of them um they definitely they sort of reminded me of uh the cinema of popper hoven in that they both like sort of take a genre and sort of celebrate the part of it while also sort of setting up some other aspects of it and adding like sort of deeper uh deconstructions of like how they construct meaning and stuff like that uh and and he's also a satirist so there you go i think i've only seen the first two i don't think i ever caught the third one but i've always been interested in seeing it they're, they're it's they're great i don't know what else to say they're just they're just so uh the aesthetic is just so exactly what i was looking for um, and they really, they really hit me to the point where I immediately just bought another, like, Blu-ray trilogy of his films. So, there you go. <laughs> I actually think I'm going to write about him from a, a final project paper, too. What was the other trilogy you bought? Uh, it's called the Black, uh, Society Trilogy. And I've heard, actually, uh, at least two of the films feature affinities with, the uh, uh, Takeshi Kitano's films, so... We'll see how those pan out, and I'll report back next time we do this, and if I've watched any more of them. And yeah, those are the best movies that I watched this week. Takashi Miike is, is the most uh, dependable uh, filmmaker that I ever catch at the Melbourne International Film Festival. It's uh, so funny. Well, but that's because he's directed like a hundred films. Like, <laughs> he's always got something to watch to, to show you. It's usually the the most enjoyable like cinematic experience I have at the festival. Is I mean, he's really he's just he knows how to make really really entertaining movies. Hmm. You gotta think uh, like even I mean you know I haven't watched like some of his anime adaptations or stuff like that, but I was like somewhat interested in seeing the Phoenix Wright film, but I I haven't. <laughs> have you played those games? I have. Yeah, I like the. Oh, games they're so much fun! I like grew up with those games actually. Yeah, they're great. They're great. They're they're so good. Uh, I would love to watch that too. And apparently directed the, uh, which is funny because there's a, there's a video series called uh, Yakuza, which has actually gotten a lot, a lot, a lot popular. Yeah, it's pop. It's gotten more popular in the West uh, than maybe you'd expect. Um, but he directed the film version of that, which is bizarre considering it's so indebted to his like, <laughs> I don't know, career. <laughs> so there you go. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm go- I'm gonna try to watch more of his films. What about the worst film? What's that? Uh, the worst film I saw recently would have to be The Lobster, which, yeah, I really did not enjoy. Wow, really? That's funny. I really like that movie, actually. Well, everyone else everyone else I've spoken to and, and the 
large majority of the reviews were positive about it, but I really did not get on board with this. Do you like um, Jorgen Lanthimos's other other? Films? I haven't seen his other. I think this is the first film I've seen of his. So I haven't seen Dog okay. Tooth or. Well, you or probably won't enjoy those. The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna just uh, suggest that you probably won't enjoy them. I mean, um, this is probably a little bit inaccurate, but the lobster seemed like you know Stanley Kubrick and Charlie Kaufman's like really shitty child or something. <laughs> yeah, I can get that. So it, it has it has that really precise formalism in the way it's shot but which which i found visually uninteresting and dull and, and sort of static he sort of ramps up kubrick's way with dialogue which is to have really sort of flat strange line reading and it was just i don't know it as i grow older i kind of gravitate towards films which have more humanism than something like this you've grown weak i've grown weak and especially like once they get out of the hotel in this film and they're in the woods and there's, there's like a different crew of characters uh, and a different kind of society operating there in opposition, it felt like it had run out of ideas and steam and it kind of meanders for the rest of the film. I, d- I didn't, I don't find it to be, I don't think it's like a profound film, but I really enjoyed the aesthetic in the, well, not to, not, I don't want to just trample on your opinion. I don't think it's a profound film whatsoever. No. Like whatever it's saying about human relationships is just, just dumb. Like, yeah, but I I enjoyed I I thought it was really funny actually. <laughs> the sadism I didn't find funny. Oh, see, I did, I did find that funny. I did imagine you finding parts of it funny. <laughs> just just how I imagined you watching Ready Player One and <laughs> be tortured by it. I'm sure you loved the kicking the dog to death. <laughs> I love that scene so much. I love that I was watching it with my brother too. He's like a big dog lover. Yeah, no, I, I thought Lobster was garbage. Yes. Whoa, whoa! How many stars did you give it? Two. Yeah, so it's not—it's not complete garbage. Maybe not complete garbage. Like I watched it all. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. It was like—it was almost like like a really bad sketch, stretched over two hours, like an antagonistic sketch, like not trying to be like a hilarious satirical sketch. But I, I kind of—I kind of enjoyed that too. <laughs> but yeah, that was the worst. What about you? Um, I don't know. I, you know, I didn't. I don't think I watched up to have one that was like this is awful. But I guess I'll say the uh, the Runny Man. I quite like that film. <laughs> uh, it's it's so dumb. <laughs> uh, I it's funny that we watched both or I watched that both that and Ready Player One in the same uh, week because they're both they both are very uh, they both have a lot of structural similarities with like you know uh, video games. Mm. And that it's all about like uh, killing, like bosses and stuff like that. Um, and I just thought it was like fine. Like it's got some like really entertaining like one liners and stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. There's better Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Like it, it wasn't quite like absurd enough. Like if I'm gonna watch one that I think is like um, like a, an actual movie because like Total Recall is probably my favorite Schwarzenegger film because it's yeah. like, great. But it, that's not like a. It's such a, it's like a movie movie. Like it doesn't try to. I don't know. It just it, it does try to please you on like a on a cinematic level, but it doesn't try to like um it's not the only thing it offers. If I'm gonna watch one that's like just Schwarzenegger like cinema pleasure, I'll go with like Commando. Which is like ridiculous and amazing. And this didn't quite reach that level. I mean there's some great lines, don't get me wrong, and some good kills. But like, you know, I mean Schwarzenegger's such a fascinating star that I'll always like watch and probably enjoy anything that he's in. Especially if it was made in this period. 
I do like the chintziness of the, just like Ready Player One, the the very sort of like uh broad and uh nonsensical um world that it's set in, which the only organization that seems to have any power is, is the, the fucking like TV station, which is so dumb. I watched on the subway and it was like the perfect film for that because I could like sort of pay attention and sort of nod and it didn't really matter. Watched uh, on the but, subway. <laughs> yeah, my Kindle. On like tiny little in like tiny little chunks. Yeah, yeah. What? What? I'm not gonna watch the entire thing all at once. What are you talking about? <laughs> I have limited time, man. What else am I supposed to do with my stuff? Like commute. How How many of the films that you watch do you watch in chunks like that? I'm just curious. Um, I mean, generally, I reserve that for films that I think are gonna be like, uh, you know, dumb and silly. That's fair enough. Yeah. Um, like most of the time, I try to watch stuff, but like. You know, I mean, I work. Like you're a... not watching Tokyo Story on the subway. No, no, of course not. Like if I think of film demands, like part of I'll try to give it that. But like stuff like, like the Ruddy Man or the other film I watched, which I won't reveal. I'll talk about it in a minute. Uh, I just don't think like it's the the pleasure in them is not watching them all at one time. So, you know, like there's there's no episodic and like um, spectacle trivia that it's like I'm not really getting much from it being like a con- like a concussive blast. Then what's your wild card? So my wild card is the only other film I saw, which is The Insect Woman um, by Shohei Imamura um, from 1963. Wait, this connection that, uh, remember correctly, uh, Takashi VK studied under. Did he really? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, Insect Woman is, it sort of uh, mirrors a film I talked about on a previous unedited podcast the life of oharu which is a mizuguchi film so it sort of mirrors that in that it focuses on uh, a central female character who is kind of mistreated by societal institutions uh, endemic in japanese society that it portrays and this is a little bit different the protagonist has more agency uh, in the sense that she adapts to her situation uh, mirrors the behavior of of certain other people who have taken control of their lives and that sort of stuff. The English title is The Insect Woman. The Japanese title is more like The Study of Japanese Insects or something like that. But apparently uh, Imamura got the idea when he saw an insect on the table like crawling around and, and that kind of opens and, and frames the film uh, as this like instinctual creature that adapts to different situations and, and that sort of stuff. The black and white photography is amazing and it has some really interesting stylistic choices and, and just the fragmented narrative, but it's never incoherent. Like it, the fragments it, it chooses, it's a relatively straightforward story, um, but really effectively told in these just little telling chunks, told mm-hmm. these telling chunks. What am I talking about? I um, don't know. And it has strange sections in which it uh, starts doing s- series of images like La Jetée, um to convey a particular chunk of the story. And it's, it's kind of strange and offbeat. So it's, it's, a, it's a weird film, but it's a really enjoyable one. Uh, I watched uh, a movie called Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, which is a space opera directed by uh, Luc Besson, adapted from a comic, a long-running comic series uh, in France called uh, Whirly and Valerian. Um, and it's funny that Luke Besson decided to make this because he made a film early in his career called The Fulfillment, which is very much inspired by uh, those sorts of European space opera comics. 
they're very very popular in the sixties and seventies. Um, and the this movie is it's funny that this is a direct adaptation because the fifth one is a much better adaptation of sort of the spirit and the visual aesthetic of those comics, at least in my opinion. I like the fifth uh, one a lot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this movie is just it's just fucking nonsense. To be honest, like it's just I don't know. Like the uh, I it had uh, another one of like just to, I've been thinking about this movie a lot recently because it's one of the great films, obviously. But uh, uh, again, it reminded me of Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, and that the lead character uh, who's played by Dane, Dane DeHaan, and uh, the film is supposed to be sort of like dashing, like you know, French charmer, right? Much sort of like how you imagine Anakin Skywalker is supposed to be, right? But much like uh, Attack of the Clones, the person that Luke Besson chose to play him uh, is sort of a moody type of guy who seems to only brood a lot. Which is, it's so wrong for the role that it comes around, it comes kind of comes amazing to me. Um, I, I don't know. It's it's like a perfectly fine movie. There's some fun spectacle stuff, but, you know, honestly, it's just sort of like, it, I, I, it's sort of, I started forgetting about it as soon as I finished watching it, really. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Hello? 